0: Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. We hear Dominic Cummings has been spending time in contemplation on the holy island of Lindisfarne, preparing for what friends call a third act. Don't stare too hard out the window, Dom, it's bad for your eyesight. But on today's show, we'll be talking about the situation in Gaza and how and why the European left are attacking each other over the Israel Hamas war. Is it important to pick a side, or should you stay neutral if you possibly can? Plus, hundreds of new MPs will be joining the Commons next year. Who are they? And will this be a new generation of abstemious, hard-working public servants who wouldn't think of going on jollies and assaulting their staff? Or will they be the same old, same old? Let's meet the panel. Marie LeConte is a columnist and author of the books Haven't You Heard and Escape. Hello, Marie. Hello. Rachel Reeves is in hot water this week after an FT investigation revealed that whole passages of her new book have been lifted from Wikipedia, as well as from the work of her fellow Labour MP, Hilary Benn. Did this surprise you?
1: I mean, I, yeah, fell, fell from my chair, you know, That like, took me days to recover. Um, no, well, I mean, you know... And, uh... I I don't know the exact details, to be clear, but I, you know, as I think everyone else assumed that it was written by some ever so slightly underpaid 24 to 26 year old uh, who probably did not have enough time to do it either. um, And so probably cut some corners and went, that'll be fine. No one's going to check or maybe thought, you know, I'll put this in now and then go back and I rewrite it later and forgot. It's poor form. I will, you know, I will say I'm definitely not pro-plagiarism. I feel like I should make that case now. I will take that stand bravely. Um, But no, no, not
0: uh, a huge shock either. Well, maybe that 24 to 26-year-old will be the next female Chancellor after (laughs) Rachel Reeves. This book was already, I'm afraid, in my should read, probably won't brain file, of which a number of books <laughs> <laughs> read and reside, and now I'm definitely not buying it. But why do politicians write books, or in the case of Reeves, not write them?
1: <laughs> oh God, yeah. Like her book sounds really boring. Like no offence to her, but and then also I like the fact that she's quite, and that's entirely fine. To be clear, I think being quite a boring politician is not a problem. But she does do the, that thing occasionally of being like, I'm not boring, for example, and then proceed to say or do something incredibly dull which I find like weirdly endearing to have a book launch but you know so to be able to yeah, have the book launch and do a media cycle around it so you know do like you'll probably get a big interview out of it because interviewers like having a hook so you'll get to talk about your book um and then you'll probably get to talk about it afterwards you know this there's a, like, end of the year whatever list of political books and uh you yeah, know I, th- I think they just do it for the attention which to be fair is not unlike a lot of authors um,
0: I actually want my chancellor to be boring. I'm not interested in exciting chancellors. But are any of these books ever any good? Have you ever read a book by a politician that was absorbing?
1: I I thought you were going to get, have you ever written an interesting book? (laughs) It's just like, I'm sorry to say, maybe one day. Um, I've I, I I don't I try because I really really enjoy reading and I don't really want Westminster to ruin that for me um so I tend to kind of avoid uh, most like, British political books but so I I don't know I think my rule of thumb is either either you write your memoirs if you're prepared to be entirely honest and also you've had an interesting career and an interesting life before that uh for example so the the one I did really enjoy uh, was Peter Mandelson's memoir um also I would recommend the audiobook which is read by him and it is so long and it's basically like there's <laughs> There's no humility in there whatsoever. Like, not like he, He's not thought back on anything. So it's this incredibly long audiobook of him saying, you know, Tony and Gordon did this, and I warned them that they were wrong, but still <laughs> they did it. And then when it all came crumbling down... I thought, yet again, no one listened to Peter. It's just that again and again, which I found absolutely joyous. But uh, but yes, I think either that or or I think the kind of, you know, if you're someone who maybe was a historian on the side or had an actual job beforehand, then, you know, write books connected to that. But aside from, I would say, these two quite narrow options, um, there's not much or diaries, which are really bitchy. Yeah, um, I feel like these these are the, the only three really options.
0: Alan and- Clark is the one that people always mention, mm. though. To be honest, really, also quite dull. Just what a horrible man! <laughs> I'm just yes. like, what a profoundly horrible man. Well, Peter Manderson got married at the weekend, so congratulations, Peter. Yasmin Sirhan is a staff writer for Time Magazine. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. The House of Representatives finally has a new speaker, Mike Johnson. Unmemorable name, apparently unmemorable <laughs> man, uh, because no one seems to know much about him. Enlighten us.
2: I was going to say same up until up until recently. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say that this is one of the few news items in recent weeks that actually allowed me to have a nice little chuckle. Um, <laughs> because he is more or less what you would expect um, to emerge from a speaker's race um, in a house that is still... Republican-led. So this is a Louisiana lawmaker. He is an avowed Trump loyalist. He was actually one of basically a key figure in, in trying to overturn the election results of 2020. In terms of kind of who he is as a person, his background, more or less what you would expect from sort of the Trumpian wing of the party, evangelical Christian, hardline stances on abortion and same-sex marriage. You can imagine what those stances are. Um, he was a member of Trump's defense team in his first impeachment trial. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically, the I didn't follow the ins and outs of the speaker's race because honestly, I got a little bored and, and had other things to cover, but he was, I, it kind of felt to me that when they finally got around to him and he was sort of the fourth candidate, that they were like, you know what, let's just, <laughs> let's just do this now. Um, and it, it's really funny because, you know, he's not one of these big personalities or names that I think anyone would have known. But one of my favorite answers that he gave was he was, <laughs> he was telling, I guess someone had asked about sort of what his worldview was, and he said to pick up a Bible, and that oh. is his worldview. So... <laughs> Is he going to be one of those, like, big speakers that stays with us? I don't know. But what I do know is that I think Congress deeply has a lot of things it wants to get done, not least aid to Israel and things like that. So I think they really just needed someone. And he's quite lucky that he mm. just happened to be the fourth in line. And he's now second in line to the presidency oh. by terms of succession, which is great.
1: Now, as I said, just the quick thing, um, I, I find it really odd how normal he looks, because he is clearly, like, quite in his own like, really radical. but right? And I, I, I will... Um, I think not phrase it right, but a tweet I saw really amused me. Of like the fact that, yeah, he doesn't look like you're kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera, And he, and instead he looks like the main speaker at a convention for dentists. And like, he does, he does. Like, he looks very dull and serious, which is a problem, I think, because, again, you kind of want your nutters to look nuttery. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, so, so. You want to be
2: able to pick them out of a crowd.
1: No, exactly. In, yeah, yeah, I'm not bringing in. the yeah, yeah. tone down.
0: <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I've often observed that, unfortunately, you cannot always pick a nutter out of a crowd. <laughs> And that is one of the reasons why we don't have pre-crime. Before we get started, a quick heads up. We've got a live show coming for Christmas and Patreon people will be the first to find out. It's me, Dorian and Alex, plus a very special guest. And if you want to be the first to find out exactly where and when it's happening, a new venue, and get discounted tickets, then Patreon is the place to find out. Search Patreon Oh God What Now, exclusive ticket links coming your way imminently. The ground war in Gaza began in earnest the weekend. Israeli tanks and soldiers have moved into the territory and reportedly moving towards Gaza City. Hamas is still firing rockets towards Israel. Yasmin, you spoke to some Palestinians for Time magazine a couple of weeks ago. Things were already bad then. What are you hearing from them now?
2: Um, Honestly, mostly silence, Um, and that's not because they don't have anything to say. I imagine they have a lot to say, but you know, it was really difficult to reach these people even at, I don't want to say the best of times, but in the past three weeks it's been really difficult pretty much since the Israeli government laid their complete siege which cut off, among other things, electricity to the Strip. So this one 21-year-old woman from Gaza that, that I managed to get on the phone eventually told me that she was basically using her neighbor's solar panels or car batteries to charge her phone. Um, Since we ran that piece, I actually haven't been able to get a hold of her since. Um, I don't really know what's happened to her, and since Friday, I, that was kind of I think the scariest time because that's when there was basically a comms blackout in Gaza. No one, every WhatsApp message was just left with one tick. Like it was impossible to get through. So dire was the situation that um, the the mosque minarets, where they use the, the the call to prayer comes out of, they were using those. And I've never heard these say anything but the call to prayer. But it, this was the first time I saw a recording of basically it being repurposed as a loudspeaker to get their message out. That you know we completely cut off this is the heaviest bombardment we've been seeing so it was really just horrifying now thankfully we've been hearing that i think that connection is being restored but it's still just such an incredibly difficult time um and yeah and a lot of it is unfortunately happening under darkness both literally and figuratively
0: You've been following the displacement of Palestinians and that is not just within Gaza but in the West Bank too. What is happening there which we're not hearing much about? Yeah,
2: it's basically what we're seeing is a concerted effort by Israeli settlers in the West Bank of which there are some, I think 700, 800,000, using kind of the cover of the war to intimidate and violently expel Palestinian families um from their communities and villages. I should preface that this is not new. Um, we've been, myself and, and many others to an even greater extent, have been covering this throughout the year. We've been seeing an uptick in settler violence, unlike what we've seen in many, many years. Um, but there have been reports in recent days that have been really, really concerning. Um, they're coming from human rights groups like B'Tselem and others. Um, I'll just run rattle through some of them that I just got in my inbox this morning. Um, in the West Bank village of Susia, which has been experiencing a lot of this recently, settlers were threatening Palestinian residents there and basically told them if they do not leave within In 24 hours, they will come back and kill them. Um, In Um Umm al-Kher, which is is quite close, this is all sort of in the Hebron area, um, a group of masked Israeli reservists, reportedly, were invading Palestinian homes and assaulting them, basically told them that if they did not put an Israeli flag outside of their homes in 24 hours, they would come back and forcibly expel them. Um, Elsewhere in the West Bank, we've been seeing very similar things with soldiers and settlers, who I think to a lot, both observers and Palestinians there, who have kind of become indiscernible from one another, have basically just been terrorizing and threatening them. And we've already seen, according to Bet Salim, that um, I believe eight communities, totaling around more than 400 Palestinians, have been forced out of their homes. Um, and this is just across the West Bank. Um, so and I think all of this is being done under the fog of war, presumably on the assumption that people won't be paying attention because their attention will be cast on Gaza. Um, and that's largely been true. We're seeing more coverage of it a bit. But what we're not seeing is any big reaction, um, particularly from, from world leaders, because obviously they, they've got their hands a bit full right now. But it's, it's yeah, it's, um, it's pretty concerning.
0: Are you worried that Israel's ultimate aim is to push out the Palestinians completely, perhaps to countries like Egypt, but also sending more Palestinians to places like Syria and Lebanon. Is that, do you think, the ultimate end game?
2: It's something I am concerned about. And, and I think what's important to note for people who are perhaps less familiar with this conflict is that this is kind of the preennial fear of, of Palestinians, um, both within Palestine and across the diaspora, and not for without reason, um, because there is a lot of precedent. Um, but I mean, Let's just say we're looking at what's been happening in the last three weeks. Within Israel, there have been calls for another Nakba, which of course is um, the Arabic word for catastrophe. It refers to the expulsion of 700,000 Palestinians um, in the war um, that ultimately led to Israel's creation. Um, There have been calls to flatten Gaza to make it uninhabitable. And there have been calls to, as you say, expel Palestinians um, to Egypt or or to the Gulf or elsewhere. I mean, these are not fringe voices that are making these calls. These are Israeli Ministers, they're members of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's own Likud party, and even former generals and like kind of senior officials. When these voices are coming out and, and they're saying that this is our intent, um, you kind of have to take them at their word. I should note it's not just Palestinians who are scared of this. Um, both Jordan and Egypt came out basically saying they're not going to play a hand in in the in the forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. Um, and you know when. I found it really interesting when people were reacting to Egypt's refusal to take them in as though it was was this callous move. And I can completely understand how it was seen that way. But I think more fundamentally, Egypt cannot be seen to participate (laughs) in that displacement because their people in the Palestinians generally would lose it. Um, So that's kind of something to understand. Simply put, um, it it is a concern. I mean, yeah, it's a concern.
0: (laughs) How is... President Biden handling this? Do you think he's having any impact on the Israelis' actions? I mean, so far, he hasn't really been
2: seen to curtail them. I think his administration explicitly said that they wouldn't be drawing any red lines, which to any observer listening, and certainly from you know the Palestinian side of things, is a carte blanche to just carry on. Um, the one thing that I think worth noting is that biden actually in a readout from or in a recent post kind of detailing one of his recent conversations with president sisi of egypt said that they had discussed among other things their commitment to ensuring that palestinians in gaza are not displaced to egypt or to any other nation so that concern that i just articulated has clearly had some cut through Um, the question however is whether biden could actually even prevent such a thing from happening Um, it's become clear from the reporting that's come out since Friday that I think Biden was trying to dissuade Israel from doing a full-scale ground invasion, but more of kind of a, a sort of surgical, quick thing. Um, and it doesn't seem, based on what we're seeing, like those calls have been heated. So I'm I'm not sure if he has the the willingness or or the power to curtail them in a significant way.
0: Marie, more and more Labour MPs are calling for a ceasefire. The Scottish leader Anas Sarwar and Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, have also called for one. Keir Starmer, of course, is not. Talk us through the internal party politics of this, because Starmer's position reflects his determination not to tolerate any form of anti-Semitism in the party, doesn't it?
1: I, At risk of being cynical, I think that Keir Starmer's problem with this is that a lot of what he's been doing so far is going what would Jeremy Corbyn do in the situation? Great, I will do the opposite. Which, again, to be fair to him, I think that's worked very well so far in many things. But no, it sort of felt, you know, especially when Starmer was on LBC and at the beginning, you know, so he later apologized, but refused uh, to condemn Israel, withholding water and electricity from Gaza, stuff like that. that. That kind of seemed to me like a leader who assumed that, you know, oh, now the cranks are gone, then, you know, we can sort of do this sort of stuff without opposition and not really realizing the fact that actually it is, you know, like it's not and then I, I personally find it infuriating, you know, it is not cranky behavior to care about the livelihood of palestinians and also i think you know there are lots of muslims and people of arab heritage in the party at any level from labour voters to members to councillors Like minute was it like over 20 of whom have now left the party to mps and even you know shadow frontbenchers etc so i think that they were clearly taken aback by the opposition they got internally they're quite hard line on what's going on um and yeah, and I think that they're not fully backtracking, but I do think that though Starmer has been, has, has, has been enforcing party kind of discipline with quite a firm hand so far in his leadership, this may be one of the issues where he just has to say, actually, you know what? if you feel strongly about this, I'm not going to stop you. Like we do have a party line. But if you want to deviate from it, then you can. Because, you know, and there's been several stories about shadow, even shadow is considering resigning from the front Bench over this. So, I'd, yeah, I, I don't think they'd seen it coming because, and that's a problem, I think, of the left everywhere. They kind of saw it through the lens of, but what does this mean for the left? Um, which is, is not always, um, you know, the best way in which to think about stuff, I think.
0: Marie, a number of Labour councillors have quit because of its stance on the war. Is that adding to the pressure for Starmer to pick a side?
1: Um, I do believe it is. And and again, I think several people have threatened uh, resigning from the front bench. Um, so, So it is very much, I think, an issue people feel incredibly strongly about. And it is. And, you know, I will say it feels kind of part of a wider issue as well, where the Labour Party has been relying on Muslim votes for a very long time and yet kind of ignoring it, you know, assuming that you know, Muslims can't really go anywhere else, um, and 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 again, that's definitely I think been kind of like bubbling in the background for some time, and w- which is why I think you're seeing all these resignations and people going enough. Like it's it's kind of the last straw, uh, rather than just like this one issue kind of out of nowhere. Um, but also, I think yeah, like f- even from a cynical perspective, they should. Be aware of the fact that was it so I think like three parliamentary seats uh, have a majority of Muslim voters, and uh, was it like you know a few dozen seats have like a large enough Muslim block that they could sway, um you know, the election that specific seat, etc. So, so it, it is you know they do need, and and I hate saying the Muslim vote because it's obviously not one block, and you know and people are different and think differently, etc. But it is fair to say that the conflict is something that is you know very close to the heart of lots of Muslim voters, and you know and Labour Muslim politicians, so. Um, So, yeah, and I think even anecdotally, I've seen a number of people on social media already saying, you know, I'm not I'm just not going to vote next election. Then I'm just not I'm just going to stay at home. And that's that. I'm not fine. I'm probably not going to vote for anyone else, realistically. But Labour is losing my vote over this.
0: Yasmin, do you see similar splits among US Democrats? Because some universities have been slated for putting out pro-Palestinian statements.
2: There has been a huge shift. This is something that I've been reporting on over the last few days, uh, specifically kind of looking at the Arab American vote and and kind of how their support for for Biden specifically has been waning. But I I think we're seeing, um, look, I think there was a recent poll that found that two thirds of Americans support a ceasefire and de-escalating things. And yet you know, the, both the president and the majority of, of of the vast majority, I would say, of Democrats have not articulated that view, and so it's it's really not just the case that that Biden and, and the Democratic Party writ large are out of touch with, you know, the, their Arab American um, and kind of Muslim populations, which, on the grand scheme of things, is not a, a significant, you know, a huge population that you think is going to um, potentially. Actually, I don't even want to say that because it could cost them support in certain key states, which is a problem. Um, But they're they're also ignoring a progressive voice that is increasingly becoming quite frustrated. And you're seeing that, I think, in the scale of the protests um, that are happening not just in the U.S., um, but all over the world. Um, So, yeah, there's there's definitely a shift. And it feels like there's – I don't know if you guys feel this way too, but like there's almost – A a different war going on online Um, Mm. that's kind of complementing this one, but in all the worst ways. Um, And you're seeing that split, the fragmentation kind of happening in real time. Um, So, yeah, it's it's definitely an issue that I would imagine is probably going, touching beyond just here and, and the U.S., but probably most countries.
0: And Marie, France has the biggest Jewish population outside Israel and the U.S. and a lot of Muslims too. What is happening among the left there? (sighs)
1: Ah, <sighs> just <laughs> Ross, amazingly. Uh, you will not believe this. Um, but no, no, more seriously. Um, cause, uh, so there's this group, which I apologize to French listeners, but I can never remember if they pronounce it Nup or Nupes. You know, he got formed to kind of like try and um, counter the centre and the far right last year. Uh, somehow, had sort of managed to keep this uneasy alliance going for some time. But it's now. Um, well, I think that the phrasing is slightly odd. So the centre left has has left the coalition for a bit. Um, it's one of and it's not one of those I'm kind of like translating badly. Like it, it, the phrasing was very awkward. But anyway, so what happened is that again, I think. Um, slightly predictably. So Jean-Luc Mélenchon and his party, La France Insoumise, so the kind of far left bit of that coalition, uh, released a number of statements in which they kind of refused to explicitly blame Hamas for the terrorist attacks, uh, which the centre-left said, OK, well, that's very obviously unacceptable. And then the France Insoumise, you know, refused to back down. And so, yeah, the centre-left has left for now. So, so again, yeah, but it, it is kind of the, yeah, slightly, like, it, it is the, yeah, the, the the kind of, I think, obvious Left split, that's happened elsewhere as well, with the kind of like cranky far left um, and the saner centre left, if you don't mind me editorialising slightly.
0: I imagine none of this is bothering Emmanuel Macron very much though. Mm. No. Yasmin, we've all seen people on social media who argue that sitting on the fence about this war is a morally indefensible thing to do. But I see others saying that it's vital not to and that it's important to... Uh, to to be as neutral as possible. How are you handling these dilemmas yourself?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I'm closer to this subject uh, than most, both by virtue of my job, but also by virtue of my heritage. So, But I can understand why people would look at this issue and not want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, um, because it's very charged and you're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And... Um, and I think that mostly stems from the fact that you're dealing with a conflict that people describe as inherently very complicated, spanning thousands of years. I mean, it's a political conflict over land spanning 75 years. Like, Let's just baseline that. Um, to answer your question, I do think that is it is important for people to be paying attention. And, and I say that for two reasons, um, none of which have to do with with my own particular position or bias. The first being that our countries, that both both the UK, but I think also fundamentally the US, um, are actively a part of this, um, both in supporting what is happening and being very engaged with what's happening, and and as a consequence, as our leaders are making decisions on on this. A very seismic issue that has already seen thousands of innocent lives um, completely wiped out. Um, And and I think off that basis, um, it's important that these leaders have a sense of where their populations stand on this issue, what matters to them, especially when it comes to things like humanitarian pauses and ceasefires. So on on that basis, look, if your tax dollars are going to it, um, then maybe it is worth just paying attention. I know that you could apply that to a lot of conflicts, but I think this particular one, that's especially true. And the second reason is that it hasn't not touched our communities. I mean, Marie touched on it a little bit, but um, I think we all have. But, you know, we, we've been seeing a rise in um, both Islamophobic and anti-Semitic um, attacks. Um, in the U.S. in particular, I know that this has been a really big problem. I'm thinking specifically of a young Palestinian boy who was killed by his landlord. Uh, but there have been a, a number of others. Um, and it's just been really devastating for those communities there. And And it is not right at all that, you know, this... I think you have to understand what what is driving this in order to address it um, in an appropriate way. So I, I think those are two big reasons why I would say you know it's imperative that that we do try to learn something about this. But but I think also fundamentally, you know, when I spoke to people in Gaza, they know where Israel stands on this. Like they're not surprised by Israel's actions. What truly shocked them was the fact that people were watching this war happen in real time on their phones, on their televisions, and that no one seemed to be saying anything. Don't get me wrong, they did see the outpouring of love from, you know, the potentially millions who, who have gone out on the streets in protest. They do see some of it, but as far as they're aware, all of this is happening and, and no one really cares because it's still happening so I, I think even on that basis too like you know if, if you choose not to speak up or at least read up and learn and there's nothing wrong with reading up and learning and asking questions um, I, I don't think you should be dissuaded from doing that but if you don't do that, just know that that is seen by people there um, and and I, I can't speak um, for Israelis. But but I know that for a fact, even just talking to Israeli families uh, who've had family members of theirs taken hostage and, and, and others um, who've been impacted by this, even just emotionally, the reaction um, and the solidarity, particularly from Biden, has meant so much to them. So it really, really matters.
0: The fear is, of course, that this war spreads and the conflict becomes even more entrenched. But do you see any glimmer of hope that this awful period might End up forcing both sides to the table and leading to some kind of solution.
2: Whatever hope I had was kind of extinguished in recent weeks. To be honest, um, I don't see how this ends, and, and most of my friends who are close to this subject and you know who have followed it for many years don't see how it ends. The only thing I can see is that everyone loses, uh, perhaps with the exception of the most extreme. It's just it's tricky because you know a return to the status quo, which is Israel not really having any sort of assembly of permanent safety and security whilst an occupation and complete blockade kind of makes life unlivable for millions of Palestinians. Like that, was, that wasn't that was safe and it clearly didn't make anyone safe um, and we're seeing that. A return to that is not good. The only hope I can see is that you can't possibly return to that. My concern is that what pl- replaces it is something potentially even worse. <laughs>
0: Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Marie, who is your hero of the week?
1: Uh, well, I was worried it was a bit cliche, but um, Matthew Perry. Um, wow. Because I think that, I mean, obviously I think the death was a huge shock. Like I think it was to everyone else. But also I'd not, like, I have to confess, I had not really been aware of all the work he'd been doing around addictions and trying to help other addicts. You know, was it like opening up his old house as a kind of like sanctuary for recovering addicts, et cetera. Like, I, I didn't know he'd been doing all that. And I think that being that broken a person still spending so much of your time and money trying to help people in a way you can't help yourself is just incredibly beautiful um so yeah here's to matthew perry
0: one of the things that struck me about that is how you know normally with a sitcom that came out in the 90s you would expect a general gen x to be mourning matthew perry but of course it isn't because friends had a sort of second life among (laughs) among um gen z and uh much younger people and so it's people multiple generations are very, very sad about the death of Matthew Perry. Mm. Who's your villain? Oh,
1: God, Tom Persglove, Uh, who is a minister of state uh, and he went campaigning this weekend with Peter Bone. Who's been suspended from the Commons uh, for allegedly bullying and sexually harassing his staff? And again, like, all of that came out very recently. Like th- there is no world in which he could have like either not found out about it or already forgotten. And yet, one well, leafleting with him, um, and obviously nothing's happened to him so far. Like Number 10's not done enough, said anything, which is infuriating. Um, but yeah, so Tom Basglev. Mm.
0: Yasmin, who is your hero?
2: Um, gosh, I-, I was gonna go. Well, can I nominate two? Yes, of course. Okay. Well, I was going to say the the people at um I feel like BBC Verify and others who have been doing a lot of work, but I'm actually going to make the the inverse of that my villain. I, I think I have to agree with Maria, Ma- Matthew Perry. Um, that was probably the only story that's distracted me um, from the Middle East story. Um, and I, yeah, it was just one of those, I, you know, obviously I think everyone's familiar with waking up to, to news that, that makes you upset, but that was just one of those few moments. And I feel like Robin Williams was probably another, one of those rare moments where I felt deeply affected by someone dying that I didn't know, um, but who had, kind of you know touched mine and a lot of people's lives and and i think similar to maria i just i it made me want to watch the friends reunion but also read his books i just Mm. was painfully unaware of everything that he's done since then and that he really wanted his like obviously his legacy is and was always going to be friends um but the work that he's done to help others overcome addiction um i thought was just incredibly moving and so yeah just really really sad um but my villain, which I guess is kind of the inverse of what my original hero is going to be, though I do insist that those people are none the, nonetheless heroic, um, is kind of I know that this isn't a person, but it's kind of like AI and purveyors of disinformation generally and misinformation. Um, misinformation, of course, I, I believe being unintentional, um, which basically means all of Twitter. Um, and which is here is where I kind of caution people, um, including some of my, you know, friends and family, um, well-meaning as they are, to really take every piece of information that you get both now and within the next several weeks with a grain of salt. Because, for example, uh, BBC Verify did this great um, sort of... They've been doing these great threads of sort of noting how they're spotting misinformation. And and one such thing was an um, AI-generated image of a man in Gaza carrying like four or five kids. Um, If you look at that image closely enough, you will see that it is impossible that he is carrying them all because he has, like, three on his back and, like, two and, like, you know, if you're giving someone sort of a piggyback ride, you have to be holding. Anyway, it's like you look at it, you look at it long enough, you're like, OK, yeah, this actually is a bit sus. But a lot of well-meaning people are sharing it. And and I think what most upsets me is there's no shortage of horrific photos that are real coming out of there. So why do we need to make them up?
1: Oh, I've really yeah. hated the like emotional roller coaster of people posting something and then someone quote tweeting it to say, no, this is not from Gaza. And you're like, yay, that horrible picture is not true. And then it's like, it's actually from Syria in 2012. Yeah. And it's like, oh, God, just, oh, just so much human suffering in the world
2: yeah so my my villain is unfortunately just everyone who's inadvertently spread it not because i think you're bad people but i think you were just contributing to this problem and i may be among these so let us be careful
0: well from those i need to choose my hero and it has to be matthew perry you know i think we can we can all agree um villain uh, i think twitter and and ai Um, Mm -hmm. there's actually november if you feel so inclined, November is uh, being branded No-So-November by someone, I can't remember who, who suggests you give up your social media. <laughs> yes, yes, well, that's Maurice. I will so that's never off. Yes, but it's only November and you know, you can go halfway, you can just do it for work, you can keep it off your phone and just on your laptop, there are ways of kind of minim. no, okay. I are. don't
1: think I've ever spent 24 <laughs> hours without social media in my entire adult life
0: right um, well i was thinking that i just get off twitter for november and that would be really nice oh. and uh, that, that that would just make me so much happier well, i respect you for that like yeah mm. if i could i would um, i gave up i gave up facebook ages ago because anyway you know facebook's mm. it. and i'm not on instagram because no one's interested in looking at me or my life give me tiktok or give me death <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was going to suggest it to my daughter and i thought no no <laughs> no chance I realise today that Matt Hancock is still an MP, but he won't be after the next election, nor will Dominic Raab, Sajid Javid or Harriet Harman. 78 MPs are planning to leave and you can be sure that many others will lose their seats. But who'd be an MP these days? Constituents who don't understand why you can't fix their beasts with the council, whips who won't let you vote with your conscience. It's not even very well paid, especially if you don't get promoted. And now Keir Starmer wants to crack down on second jobs. All that said there are still people who want to be in the palace where it happens. In fact, Sue Gray's son Liam Conlon has just announced he's running for the Labour ticket in the new seat of Beckenham and Penge. Marie, is there a particular mindset that you need in order to run as an MP for whatever party?
1: Ah, oh, there is. I think you've got to be quite weird. Um but I know it's a weird one I'm kind of wary of saying, you know every political candidate is the same, but oh, actually what I will say Ros, I am delighted you asked this question because I recorded a bunker on exactly this a few months ago. On this, this of study, like to try and see how MPs differ from the general population, and they do actually have slightly different personalities in ways that are very interesting. Again, it would be I think too long to explain in one uh, thing, but yeah. A long story short, yes, they are different from kind of like the rest of the world, and B, no, no, in what ways? I think that that that's a thornier question because again, all six hundred and fifty are not the same. But definitely, I think, you know, they nearly all of them like attention. Uh, you do meet the very occasional MP who clearly doesn't. It's like, why are you here? Um, but no, so I mean, some level of, you know, being quite gregarious. I, uh, I will say that there's also kind of a, you know, again, not in all of them, but, but there's clearly a bit of an internal void and, in, you know, deep desire to be loved um, that will never quite be filled in, I think, a lot of them. Interesting fact um, quite a bleak one. I feel like my tone should have been like slightly less up on that. But um, but uh, uh, lots of MPs and especially lots of people who eventually became uh, prime ministers and cabinet ministers etc. Uh, lost a parent. Like one or both parents at quite a young age. Like that's a massive deciding mm-hmm. factor for a lot of politicians, uh, which is fascinating. So um, so yeah, they're, they're just um, I think quite odd
0: and/or they've had slightly bleak lives. Yeah. Because it's an interesting one. I mean, in most jobs you are chosen by your employer. And, of course, as an MP, you have to persuade people to vote for you, which is not the same thing at all. Hmm. Does that, do you think, it make a difference that having to go through that, you know, popularity contest, which is essentially what it is, just only appeals to a certain kind of personality?
1: I think it does. What I usually find interesting with MPs is that a lot of them have a sort of sense of, I guess, a sense of optimism, of a sense that things will broadly be fine that I think not many other people have. Maybe it's just because I hang out with journalists who are cynics and, you know, depressed most of the time. Again, it's a weird mix, kind of steely kind of self-belief and thinking, well, you know, I got picked by all those people and presumably, hopefully, you know, they'll keep electing me, etc. But at the same time, there's obviously like a massive constant insecurity that comes from going, oh God, what if, you know, they stop loving me? Um. so so it's a very weird, I think. And and again, I'm not saying this is every single member of parliament, but I think a fair few of them have that really slightly unsettling mix of like massive ego, but also lots of self-doubt, self-doubt all the time. Um, and, the, and the the way these two interact can, kind of, I think, explain that many of the ways in which British politics goes wrong.
0: There's going to be a whole new intake, of course, and they're going to be younger. Do you think there's going to be a bit of a backlash against the Pestminster era? Because younger people do tend to drink less. They do tend to have less sex. Are the days of hearing about MPs sexually assaulting people in clubs and exposing themselves to staffers in foreign hotels, which seem to come up virtually every week, are those days going to be over?
1: I know that Podmasters is doing well as a company, but I don't think uh, it has um, many court cases money, so I will not name any names. But if I could, I could name a number of people, both from the 2019 intake and also current lobby journalists who are kind of my age-ish who are all creeps and sex fests, uh, which is unbelievably depressing. Yeah, all of whom are kind of like under 45. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so far, the culture is not changing. So even people who've, you know, come into Westminster in that whatever job over the past few years, you know, th- th- there's still a faction of creeps within that. So will it change? Maybe, but, but I'm not. And, and I think I, I've actually found that acutely depressing that whatever I've heard specifically allegations of stories um against people who are kind of like in their 30s because you know because it, it just feels that things will never change so no i i regret to say i don't think it'll be stamped out entirely i i do think so i think you'll lose the kind of so there's lots of different genres of creep aren't they uh, lots of flavors <laughs> um and i think you'll lose the kind of ones rather who kind of assume that those things are fine and kind of, you know, just get a big drunk and a bit jolly and I put a hand on the arse, et cetera. So I think we'll lose those. But I think the actual sort of, you know, psychopaths and sociopaths annoyingly will keep being drawn to politics.
0: So it's not just the booze, because it is one of the few jobs where you just, you know, there are multiple opportunities to drink on the job, multiple bars, a big drinking culture, not just at party conferences, so that is infamous, but also yeah. around, doesn't that contribute to it? It's, oh God, I mean,
1: that's an entirely different episode. I think yes and no. Because it's so embedded in the culture. So I think, I don't know if you're like referring to the bar specifically, let's say in the commons, I'm maybe controversially in favour of them still existing because I think the only other option is that MPs end up holding drinks in their offices, which they did. And, and we know that's what would happen because that's exactly what they did during the pandemic. You know, when mm-hmm. you know the kind of like semi-lockdowns and the bars are still closed, what happened is that MPs just had drinks in their offices, which they kind of did anyway beforehand. And that stuff is, I think a lot worse because you don't have, you know, journalists kind of hanging around, bar staff, etc. So I think, you know, people will keep drinking anyway. I'd rather they did in a place where they're seen. Mm. Um, but no, so I'm, um, th- th- there may be another podcast coming your way at some point on this very topic. Um, but no, the, the short answer is that I, I am quite, I, I do think things will get better, but I'm quite pessimistic in terms of like things getting so good that, you know, we managed to get rid of all the sex vests.
0: Have you been following the new candidates and particularly the new Tory candidates? Because you have to be an optimist, really, to <laughs> run as a Tory candidate, I feel, on the next election. Is there anybody in, you know, in particular of their particular personalities that you've noticed who could be the, oh God, the stars of the future or prime minister in 20, 30 years time?
1: So actually, yes. I mean, I I have been following it for my sins, and also because Michael Crick tweets about it a lot, which makes it easier to follow. There's a mix of both, but I I would say that so lots of the people who have been selected by the Conservative Party so far have been like overwhelmingly local candidates. So they're people who are councillors in the area, can like super councillors who'd been there for quite a long time, or maybe like leaders of council, etc. I think a lot of people who are kind of former special advisers, etc., kind of more Westminster Tories, like a lot of them have struggled to get selected because uh, local associations are just staying this time very local. But that being said, like they've got they've got a few interesting names coming through because we've got so Nick Timothy has been selected, the former Theresa May advisor. Then you've got Rupert Harrison, who's uh, quite an interesting chap. He uh, was chief of staff to George Osborne and then chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Um, and Jenny kind of known to be incredibly clever. Um, so he'll be an interesting one if he wins. Uh, then on the right of the party, you've got Katie Lam, uh, who's actually, I would say, a fascinating character. So she used to be a VP at Goldman Sachs, is currently a special advisor to Suela Braverman, which is not really what you'd expect from that vibe. And also a lyricist and scriptwriter, including for The West End and uh, award winning. Um yeah, and she's been selected as well. So so again, so you do have this weird mix of like, no offense to them, quite dull, you know, was a good, you know, good counsellor, born and bred in the area and I care about local issues and local people. And then far on the other side you've got a sort of like a handful of like really interesting, quite high level Westminster players. Um, which is maybe what you want, I guess. I mean like, being yeah, they're being quite cynical. You 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 get your shadow cabinet like in a box ready and then you get all your backbenchers on the side.
0: Has Sebastian Payne, the um, Boris Johnson biographer who now runs a think tank called Onward, has he found a seat yet? Uh, He
1: has not. Um, And and I do feel bad for him because I think it's quite... It's not unusual for someone to go from seat to seat uh, to try and get selected the problem is that a he is quite high profile because mm-hmm. he used to work at the financial times and because michael Craig i think has it in for him uh, which feels kind of unfair but like just the guy who's decided to run a thing doesn't like you but yeah so so i think that no he, he's not been selected yet but i i'm happy to come um, to his defense and say it's not entirely unusual to kind of have to do the run uh, from selection meeting to selection meeting
0: Nearly half of Labour's new candidates are women, but very few of those candidates are black, which is worrying the, le- the leadership. David Cameron managed to bring in many minority MPs 13 years ago. Why is it so difficult for Labour to do that?
2: We know that Cameron made a concerted effort to address the issue of diversity within the party, um, primarily by introducing this priority, I think A list it was called, um, of, of female and ethnic minority candidates to be selected, um, many for these safe conservative seats, which I think is quite key. Um, it's my understanding from the past reporting that I've done um, on this subject that Labor has I mean, I don't want to say that Labor, you know, is it, it's not that Labor MPs aren't representative. I think half of them, if I'm not mistaken, are women um, compared to a quarter of, of conservative MPs. I don't think, you know, if you look at Labour's front bench, um, it it is not diverse as it probably could be given um, the diversity within the party. But I know another issue that was kind of raised when I was reporting on this um, around the time of um, one of the many Tory leadership contests that we've had um, in recent years is that, um, you know, Labour would often – whereas Cameron was – prioritizing many safe seats um, for these underrepresented uh, underrepresented candidates, that labor would often just run them in constituencies where they thought they would win, i.e. constituencies with um, th- that had um, greater diversity, um, racial or otherwise. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's just, uh, for me, I think it's more, you know, if, if you have that representation up top. Um, I think that's quite, that's something that we haven't seen. And we haven't seen it in the Labour leadership as well, frankly. I mean, we haven't had a woman. Um, it's mostly just been white men.
0: mean, gender and heritage aside, what kinds of MPs do we need more of? Oh, God. <laughs> um, you know, the, the ones that have always
2: really impressed me, um, and, and this kind of just goes for politicians generally, are, you know, whilst it's, Amazing to see career politicians who have a lot of experience. I think the politicians who have experience outside of politics um, and this isn't me starting to like talk about Keir Starmer or anything, it's more like um, <laughs> crucially, um, it's it's more like you know, if they were a doctor or if they were a lawyer or if they, you know, or worked in their communities, you know, had any sort of experience that I think because I feel like A, that kind of grounds you a bit, probably you're not, you know, hmm. you can't be quite as, I think, self-absorbed or um, kind of inter- if, if you've perhaps had that background, which isn't to say that I don't think a lot of these young MPs who, who are coming into the commons, um, that, that that's not a good thing. In fact, I think it is in terms of just breaking it up. I think probably the best rule of thumb is they should not all be the same. They should not have mm. all gone to the same university. Um, they should not all sound the same or look the same.
0: They should not all have worked for an MP themselves yes. or been a, some kind of advisor. I, or worked in a think tank.
2: Exactly, and I, and I think that that also is I'm going to pay dividends later on because I think something that I find so interesting, particularly about the UK system, and I will not pretend to say that I think the US system is better when it comes to um kind of pickering the secretaries for various things. Because, um, but I, I know that you know. It would be great if, if you had a minister for a topic who who knew it, not just because they got the job yesterday and suddenly have to learn very much and just rely on civil servants who know it backwards and forwards. Though invariably, that ends up being a case when you have reshuffles. But it, it would be great if they kind of came with some of their own sort of Background experience and in insight, um, and of course, can you learn on the job? Yes, but but I think there is something quite great about having people come into politics who are driven to go into politics because they've spent a many number of years working in certain fields and feel like I know how I can implement this in a positive way. And when I say this is what needs to change, I know it because I actually lived it. So that would be my vote. Fewer journalists. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs>
0: The end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What are we distracting ourselves with this week? Is it contemporary fiction, perhaps? Naming no names. Marie. <laughs> no, actually, I decided
1: to go quite low row this week. I have been re-watching, I think, one of the sitcoms that's been like the most underrated of the past or like was it decade or so I think? Um Probably partly because of the name, which is really bad. Um, But Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, which is a really weird name for a sitcom that only has two seasons. One of the main characters is James Van Der Beek from Dawson playing James Van Der Beek, the actor, within the... TV show. Um, And and it's kind of your classic setup of like, was it like, you know, so like lovely blonde girl moves from was it like Nevada or something to New York to the big city and ends up um, in this house there with this slightly mad, quite sociopathic party girl who at first like really tries to exploit her, but then goes oh no, actually hang on, I think we can get along. And again yeah, with James Van Der Beek playing James Van Der Beek somehow as like the flat's kind of like famous best friend. It's really weird. It's incredibly funny. And again, I think so, but it's one of those really boring frustrating stories where it didn't really do well and got cancelled after two seasons because the network screwed it in some way and I think played the episodes in the wrong order so people who tried to watch it didn't understand the story so then it got canned because no one watched it which is so annoying and again it's only two seasons like seven episodes each or something but yeah i not watched it in a few years so I'm doing a rewatch at the moment it's great
0: So it's like a better version of Emily in Paris
1: I've never watched Emily in Paris no, yeah, Oh yeah it's meant to be one of the many things I hate about that show it's meant to be Emily in Paris No, I I will never watch that.
0: Surely, Mm -hmm.
2: I would love to get your take specifically on it. uh, mm -mm. How much money do you have? I will do it for a large sum. I can kind of guess what your opinion would be, and it would be the correct one. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't,
1: I don't love all sort of, and I don't love aggressively American Americans, and I really don't like Paris. So I feel like this is just not the show for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of France, yeah, my distraction was going to France for a few days, which I always enjoy. Uh, but this time I managed to eat a lot of fish because I was by the sea and that nice. was lovely. Though uh, my husband, um, when I told him that I had some really delicious octopus mixed with passion fruit, which really was delicious, said, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we should be eating octopus. It's just, they're just too intelligent. <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, okay I'm sorry. Are I'm you sorry. Eating
1: eugenics for animals, just like doing a tiny little <laughs> IQ test and then be like, nope, fine. <laughs>
0: Yeah. No. So no more octopus for me now. But um, it, it also struck me: why is it? Why is it that in France, a very good glass of wine costs literally the same as a glass of fizzy water? How can that be? The food is just as expensive, if not more expensive, than it is here. But the booze so cheap. I, I,
1: I don't, don't, don't get me started. I just.
0: Yes, <laughs> me. What have you been up to?
2: Uh, I'd be been very bad at escaping the news in recent weeks because I usually go to TikTok to scroll when I want to do that. and. Um because it's very highbrow of me, um, and unfortunately now even TikTok isn't safe. Uh, but what I have been doing is eating my feelings, um, specifically um, by taking a look back at one of my favorite cookbooks, which is Sammy Tamimi's Follistein. Um, Sammy Tamimi being um, a business partner with um, Yotamo Telenghi, um, whose cookbooks are well-known and very good. Um, so specifically, um, yeah, just flipping through Follestine, um Wishing I was better at cooking than I am, but settling on making lemon zotzer chicken because it is a easy and b delicious. So I would recommend people try it. Um, it's very very good and very easy to do. It is. Do you grill it? I just yeah, just put it in the well. Yeah. Actually, I think we just put it on fan. But sometimes we'll grill it at the very end, um, not mm-hmm. on a barbecue because London flat life. But um, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> we'll put it under the grill. It's just it's just delicious. And if you make it with um. The, the rice with vermicelli noodles. Um, I know what we call well, it yeah, in Arabic. But be, it's yeah. my favourite. Um, mm. It just goes down a treat.
0: And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now. Thank you, Marie LeConte. Thank you. And Yasmin Sirhan. Thanks. Oh God, What Now will be back on Friday or Thursday if you're a Patreon backer. Thanks for listening to Oh God, What Now. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Ross Taylor, with Marie Leconte and Yasmin Saran. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Rees. Socials by Jess Harpin, art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.